0: Welcome to another episode of Talking Sock. Australian puppeteer Sue Wallace has done it all. As co-director of Sydney Puppet Theatre with her partner Steve Coop, Sue also set up Imaginata, the Australian Puppet Centre.
1: The dream is a place that doesn't apologise for the word puppet. This episode, I talk with
0: Sue about puppet festivals in Australia and all over the world and her amazing career in puppetry.
1: Every time I perform to a good audience... It's a kick.
0: Join Sue and I now, here on Talking Sock. Sue, it is so exciting to have you on the show today. Welcome. How are you doing today?
1: Hello, Pete. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this. And hello, listeners.
0: I want to ask you the question I ask everyone first, and that is, why puppets, Sue?
1: I never wanted to be a puppeteer. I'm one of those people that absolutely fell into it. I started doing dancing when I was four. Then I moved into singing when I won a whole competition and uh, a on singing because Mum said, I can't stand waiting for this dance and that dance. Can't you sing a song? And I ended up winning it as a singer, the whole competition. And then I did do a puppet It's part of this competition. I did Thumbelina, the song Thumbelina, and Mum made me a little thumb puppet out of the thumb of a glove with a couple of sequins in it. So I remember that now, that I actually won the competition with a tiny little puppet. Adorable. (laughs) But never intended to be a puppeteer. And through university, doing psychology, but I always knew I was one of those lucky people. I always knew I wanted to be a performer. Whether that was going to be an actor, which I always thought I was going to be, singer-dancer, it turned out to be puppetry.
0: Can you identify the moment that 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 shift changed for you?
1: The actual shift didn't change until after I had worked in puppetry for a little while and I visited puppeteers around the world. I'll backtrack a little bit. While I was trying to do acting in Sydney, and, and people listening to this will know what that's like, you're waiting for phone calls, you're drilling through any information you can to find out when an audition is on. Yeah, it's tough. Constantly trying to be prepared, but for what? It's That's a difficult path. And... I got a call back for Evita when it first arrived in Australia as ensemble, so I was doing singing and dancing. Got a call back. At the same time, I got an audition for the Marinette Theatre of Australia because I was sitting in the agent's office and she got a phone call from the Marinette Theatre of Australia and she literally, this is the truth, she looked at me and she said, you'll do. Oh. Do you want to audition for the Marinette Theatre of Australia? And I went, puppets? And it was like, it's an audition. I'll audition. That's terrific. Uh, Richard Bradshaw was the artistic director then and I know we'll probably go on to this a bit later but this is sort of seminal to why I started in puppetry Mm. and I didn't even have to pick up a puppet. He read my resume and at the end of it I said so does that mean I've got a job if I wanted it and he said yes and this was to do school touring which was all that was new to me. Puppetry was new to me, school touring was new to me and I went out on the road for nine months with three different performers doing the same show so that's a great training ground and up to 15 shows a week.
0: Yeah tell us more about that touring in the early days and what it was like to work with kids and be in different schools all over Australia.
1: It really was the heyday from the, that was the early 80s through to probably the late 90s was the heyday of school touring where it was recognised that people would come into schools and have, they weren't called incursions and excursions, then it was just a show in the school and it was expected that something would happen probably once a term for a lot of schools. So this is where I learned from watching how somebody else had put a show together, it's a really privileged position. Mm. And it was already a run show. So there were already things that had been ironed out of it. So we learned how to pack things. You learned how to put things up quickly. You learned how to read a room, figure out where am I going to put this show that's logical for us and for the audience. Um, You learned how to get along with the person you were performing with because you were stuck in a car with them for a long time and (laughs) often on the road. And you shared rooms because that was the economic viability of touring. You went to places pre-GPS. So yeah. You had to find your way i remember turning up to a place in muckadilla in queensland and we're driving along going and where's the school so we had to stop a farmer and say where's the school and the school was the pub and the shop and the school crikey different times of the day and um, and we performed to 14 people a dog and a baby <sighs>
0: Because at that point, we have to count the dog and the baby. (laughs) Nothing like the days of the old Gregory's, hey, before Google Maps and to get you around Australia.
1: And the NRMA book to find accommodation. Oh, wow. No no mobile phones. So if you're running late or if there's a problem on the road, you had to find a public phone booth and stop and find your coins and try and ring the school and figure out what you were going to do. And so there was a different level of tension. But I got very good at reading maps.
0: And this was the hustle, wasn't it? Because you as the performers also had to organise all your own accommodation. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was all done by you. It was yeah. sort of a separate segment of the whole marionette puppet theater. And how long you did that for? Nine months in the first year. Or the you... first
1: year was nine months. Yeah. So that was from '81, and I still had this desire to follow the acting career because I'd studied act at acting schools as well, and I wanted to go to New York. It was the burning desire, and I wanted to go to Stella Adler or one of the major. Yeah, one of the big. One of the major um, schools and do a summer course. That was so expensive. I couldn't couldn't live in New York and do a school, mm. so I did tap dancing instead, up to six classes a week, and that was a lot of fun. Oh, wow. Learned from a woman who was uh, a dancer in Gigi with some amazing performers, so, you know, this was this was New York. You know, yeah. that, 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 that. you never knew what you were going to happen on in New York. The other thing that was so important about puppetry, and I actually think this was the turning point, getting back to that question all that time ago, I went to the International Theatre Institute in New York and I was given a bunch of pamphlets. And you could buy a book on auditions in New York. There was a, actually a book published about the current magazine on auditions that you could go to. Right. That was a...
0: Before uh, the internet.
1: Yeah, before the internet. Yeah. But the idea that there were that many auditions
0: potentially that you could A, a weekly to. magazine of sorts. <laughs>
1: yes. Wow. So that was exciting. But I got—I just got pamphlets. When I contacted the puppeteers, and this was through Richard Bradshaw, he was the only puppeteer I really knew with any connections. When I contacted the puppeteers, I was offered a bed. Hey. Mm, and I ended up subleasing an apartment in New York from Eric Bass, who's an internationally renowned puppeteer, for six weeks. So I developed this relationship with a marvellous puppeteer. I got involved with Unima. I hadn't heard of Unima. And they said, you haven't heard of Unima? Yeah. <laughs>
0: so you cre- you kind of came into Puppet World. And I have to ask, what do you think it is about puppeteers that allows them to just offer a bed and be like, there's an understanding amongst people, I think. And I'm wondering if you feel the same way. I
1: think it's a smaller club, yeah. I think if actors had this very small club, they might do the same thing. Yeah. But with puppeteers, there's also a different thing with puppeteers because often we are creating ourselves. We're creating from our own imaginations. We're building the puppets. We're writing the stories, designing, often doing the whole shebang. Yeah, That with actors, there's a kind of more of a competition because the same actress might be playing Miss Julie as another actress and they might do it equally as well. But with puppeteers, you'll find that because of those individual talents and that's all the sorts of things you bring to it you're yes. making skills you're performing skills whether you play music whether you act whether what your voice is like all that stuff means that you are you, you own it really You don't own it you? and yeah. you're less in competition
0: that's so true mm-hmm. I've never thought of it like that and it makes sense but you feel like if your show is doing well and you're able to be a functioning puppeteer and, and this is your this is you you've got a sense of self-confidence mm-hmm. behind you I think that can say oh well, this is I've made all of this you know that's yep. that's really wonderful and so you with the Marriott Theatre of Australia when Richard was artistic director as yes. you mentioned yeah. how long were you there for
1: from 81 and then I went, so I did my nine months, earned yep. enough money to go to New York and yep. follow that path, did some touring around, met puppeteers then in England. Wow. Um, again, stayed with somebody. Violet Philpot, the wonderful puppeteer Violet Philpot. she created a path through her spare room because it was just so full of puppet stuff. So I created this path through the room to get uh-huh. to the spare bed. <laughs> and, that's, and, and that's where I stayed.
0: And so the international trip then took place. And so yes. how long were yeah. you away for and where did you go? Uh,
1: I was away for nine months yeah. then. So primarily, I started in the States, and then I went through England, France, and met Eric Bass again in Germany. Oh, wow. How extraordinary. And I went to a puppet festival, one of the Puppeteers of America festivals, which was in Atlanta that year in 82. So that introduced me to the idea of puppet festivals. That was new. I didn't, I didn't know what that was like. And of course, like so many festivals, you see some wondrous things, and you see some well, things you Probably rather not <laughs> not have spent time. Yeah, with. Um, but still, that teaches you.
0: Can you remember the energy and that what it felt like to be and see a puppet festival for the first time? Oh,
1: it was fantastic. I don't think I slept very much.
0: Yeah, and you were just constantly seeing shows every single day. Yeah,
1: just seeing shows, talking to talking and talking to people as well. And the the Americans were so so welcoming of me. And I got a ride back to New York with people. You know, it was just that welcoming again. That little club that welcomed me. And I had nothing to show. They had no idea who I was. I didn't I had no puppets with me. I, by that stage, I'd never built a puppet. I, I had no intentions of ever building a puppet. Yeah. I had no idea. But the theatre side of things was my great love.
0: And to take me back, you, you came back to Australia. And when did Sydney Puppet Theatre come about?
1: Well, we were at the Marinette Theatre from then, came back and I came back to a job with the marionette theater and that's where i met my partner now steve coop for the first time we did a show at the adelaide international puppetry festival my god what a festival i think it was one of the best festivals ever burwinkle from holland philip chanty oh, wow. and neville tranter was performing and and so it it when Eric Bass was performing, I met Eric Bass again. He said, "I've so many fan moments." I've it's like you're following on him. More continents with you than I've been with anyone else, <laughs> <laughs> and that was until he met his partner Enos and worked with Enos. Uh, so that was fantastic. Uh, the show that we were doing wasn't great, but the experience of being able to see all those. Extraordinary shows was an eye opener. Then, when we came back, the Marinette Theatre of Australia was opening a new theatre in the Rocks called the Sadler's Home Theatre. Brand new theatre. Yeah. Steve and I were invited. We weren't partners at that stage, but we were invited to be part of what they called the core company. So suddenly, I had a job as a puppeteer for one whole. Yeah.
0: How good is full-time work?
1: Unbelievable. So we we were actually doing repertory. We were doing a show and then we were rehearsing into a new show. I think Richard had plans for a greater um, emergence of puppeteers so that you could then band together and create smaller shows etc but that wasn't to be. Richard was ousted out of the Marinette Theatre of Australia but we still had a contract but by the time our contract was finished that was it the new artistic director, had a different vision for the company, mm. more adult, more raunchy style of rock and roll theatre. So we went well. We worked together. This was Greg Howard, David Collins, Steve Cooper, myself, and we formed our own production company. Mind you, we had had the great privilege of being around some of the best puppeteers mm. in this country. Ross Hill was a puppet maker. Tina Matthews was there. Oh, Beverly Tini Cam- Matthews. Beverly Campbell Jackson was there. And we had designers and directors and writers that were, Brett Whiteley used to come and see shows yes. at the Marinette Theatre.
0: So it was a hub of, was, uh, of artists hub. and designers and, and it, yeah. directors and you yeah. and it's interesting that you mentioned Brett Whiteley because he shared an apartment with Richard Bradshaw. We, we've just been talking about yeah. this uh, yeah. in Richard's interview and it seems that that space of having the, the rocks and, and just having a location for puppetry mm-hmm. really was a way for you to continue that network of, of Sydney. Did you feel like that needed to carry on when you made yeah. Sydney Puppet Theatre? Yeah,
1: we really, well, we, we were excited. About the medium, we were all excited, and because we all brought various talents, we could all play some sort of music and movement. We're all quite good at movement, or tap dancing. And tap dancing. I tap danced in one of the marionette theatre shows. <laughs> I tap danced with my tap shoes on while a puppet tap danced. Oh, at the, so you know, no talent. I drummed as well. No talent has ever uh, ever wasted. Whatever you can do, you do it. And as we know, as puppeteers, if you've got two hands, you're never. If there's a show on, you're never sitting there idle. Generally, there's always something that you need to be doing. And so after that experience, then the Marinette Theatre was great. They allowed us to use studio space and we created our first show called Alice Down Under, which was a big theatre show. Sometimes you go, how did we do it because david made a lot of the puppets david and greg and we all helped in some way i did all the costuming steve did all the music yeah and, and we all pitched together it's hard and the set building and when the was set this building that was in 84 right and so that and then sydney puppet theater formed about six months later
0: with the sydney puppet theater you initiated the one van international festival of puppetry mm-hmm. which you directed seven festivals over 10 years i believe how did that festival start
1: what year are we looking at? 1998. After being to various festivals around the world, I'd seen that the small village where people could walk from one venue to another, they could communicate with each other, they'd meet each other in cafes, etc. That was a really lovely festival. Big city festivals were didn't have quite the same heart to it. And we had before this been going up to Black Heath in the Blue Mountains for some years prior with a group of puppeteers. We used to do our own puppeteer summer school where we shared skills and then we would invite other people to come and Share their skills with us. For example, we had Noriko Nishimoto from Spare Parts uh, oh, over wow. to do a week long workshop. That's what started the festival. We, instead of um, doing it at that big house that we used to rent together, we thought, no, we need to have something better. So we rented the community hall at Blackheath. There was a small hall and a big hall. We walked through into the big hall and we went, wow stage space. We've got a big hall, a small hall. Let's do a Puppet Festival. And I talked to the Blackheath Area Community Centre because I realised I needed an on-the-ground group. Best decision ever. They just said you know how you can get some societies or groups of people or organizations that go, ah no, that'll never work.
0: Yeah. And you get others
1: that go, yes. Yes. Well with the Blackheath Area Neighbourhood Centre we had people who said
0: Yes. It's a great community up in Blackheath Mm. in the Blue Mountains um, outside of Sydney because it is an artist town effectively and uh, Jenny Key lives there and there's a a huge community of artists that have now sort of found their home up there. And so the One Van Festival, tell me about the concept. You had people literally pack a whole puppet show into a van and perform out of it or bring it into the hall space.
1: They brought it into the hall. We always like, we've always been indoor performers because it's like uh, you create a theatre, a kind of portal of the imagination I call it, wherever you set up and that directs the energy for me outdoors it's harder to kind of get that energy together i admire people so much who can do it and the idea was we called it one van although that sometimes was mistaken for a vietnamese restaurant <laughs> <laughs> we chose the word one van because all the puppeteers we knew drove around in vans and when we'd have our gatherings they'd be just one van after another parked <laughs> next to each other and the idea then was without resources because we had no funding for this festival in fact we almost we had so little funding Over the festival, the the life of the festival, the people had to be fairly self-sufficient. And with school touring, you brought in your own lights and sound, you set up your shows, you could set it up in a certain amount of time, you could take it down a certain amount of time. And it was a known thing for us. So we thought, well, let's start that way. And it just grew. We started like that. Oh, the first year, I thought if we could get 50 people for every show, this will be just great because my thought was for the performers. I didn't want them to come to the festival and perform to 10 people. Mm. I've done it. I'll still do it. I don't mind doing it, but I don't want to ask other people.
0: But that's a challenge in a regional town, you know, and there's not a big population to support it. So how did you get audiences in? How did you get bums on seats?
1: We printed a program. We had the support of the community behind us and it was It was the right time. It really was the right time. And people were a little hungry for such a thing and just delighted that it was in their village.
0: How fantastic.
1: And people, of course, came from all over the mountains. And I went down at one point to the Blackheath Area Neighbourhood Centre's office because the festival was humming. It was taking off and they were printing, they were photocopying more tickets. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) wow. So we were all just so delighted.
0: Oh, it sounds fantastic. Mm. And you and your partner, Steve, have toured all over the world with Sydney Puppet Theatre. Uh, What are some of the other favourite festivals that you had?
1: Charleville-Mézières in the north of France. They have a puppetry school there. Uh, It really is a hub of puppetry. I I haven't been since they've moved it to the two-year festival. Every two years, it was every three years, so it was much anticipated. You couldn't get a hotel because it was booked up a year in advance. Uh I think it
0: still is, yeah. Yeah.
1: And that was such a special festival because you had the small, tiny shows, you had the big theatre shows, the roving shows, you had that European sense that it's okay to be an artist.
0: (laughs) Yeah, how refreshing is that? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And again, although Charles Valmezier is not nearly as tiny as Blackheath, it has that village feel to it. Mm. The other one we went to was in Dordrecht in Holland run by Damiet Daltsem. I don't think Damiet's doing the festival anymore but that was again in a small town with canals through it and she organised anybody who came could go and stay with somebody who'd put their hand up to host you. Wow. Like a and b but you paid so little for it. Just
0: a, a personal family near a yeah. Oh, wow, who was yeah.
1: keen.
0: Yeah. The, the first original Airbnb. Yeah. Crazy. and crazy. And what festivals would you recommend to puppeteers to check out, apart from maybe Charleville, which is sort of the mecca of puppet it is festivals? The
1: mecca. We've recently been to some in Serbia and Romania. Again, could you get a different influence mm. through that. Pete... If you get the opportunity to go to any festival, you go to that festival. Yeah. Check it out. Unima does publishes a list of festivals. Check out on the web. If you're travelling anywhere, find out who's doing what where because we've been to, we've done quite a lot of festivals but we've only been to a handful of them compared to what's around. My favourite place to perform has to be Mexico. We performed in Mexico City and that was a very big place but then I got the opportunity to do Nella's Wings in Tlaxcala. I don't think people pay to come... To the shows it was sponsored but the Mexicans open their arms when you arrive they just say we love you before you start they just give you so much generosity and love and consequently you do a good show because they're they're just open and willing to receive you. It
0: sounds like you've had such an array of experiences where you've had people who have just been so open and willing And that. Do you think that's puppetry or do you think that's just the way it it was at that time? Or is there another reflective experience where it hasn't been like that?
1: Oh, yes. Sometimes you go to a a festival and nobody comes to see your show, like none of the artists will come to see your show. You go, really? I asked for some lights and there aren't any lights. (laughs) And you have to, you know, you have to struggle a bit. To, to make things happen, there's no look. When I talk to people about, particularly performing in Europe, it was like this sort of golden pot. You know, where everything was rosy, and that's a mixed metaphor, isn't it? A rosy golden <laughs> pot, and oh, you it's it's accepted there, and you'll get treated well, and you'll get paid well. And no, you get so many festivals. You go for the accommodation and some food, and maybe a per diem but you don't get paid. Yeah, to do it. That's quite common.
0: Of course, yeah.
1: But what a lovely way to travel if you've oh, got it? a show. Yeah. You meet people. You've got a. Co- you don't have to think about your accommodation. You get sometimes the food is better than others, <laughs> and it's just in this world. And you, then you find out, and somebody might recommend you to another festival. There's so many I haven't been to. Yeah, Slovenia and uh, the Czech Republic, and 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 it goes on. Yeah,
0: Eastern Europe really has so many incredible Mm. companies and things happening. Well, you're listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Sue Wallace. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Sue shortly. This is
1: Philip Miller. I'm Richard Bradshaw. I'm Sue Wallace and you are listening to Talking Sock. Talking Sock Podcast. The one Orange Sock Production. This is the number one podcast for puppetry in the country.
0: Your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners.
1: The number one puppetry podcast in Australia. Follow this podcast.
0: Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Sue Wallace from Sydney Puppet Theatre. And we've been talking about her experience as a puppeteer touring Australia and internationally, as well as directing the One Van International Puppet Festival in New South Wales. And so now we're going to talk about her research into puppetry festivals around the world, which led to her directing Imagine Arda and the Australian Puppet Centre in New South Wales. But before we do that, Sue, there's a blank period for me, sort of between the mid-1980s and the late 90s. And and you must have been touring with Sydney Puppet Theatre like mad. But tell us about the Puppet Cottage, because that sort of sat in between that moment, I think.
1: We were doing a number of projects. We were lucky because you're always, you're thinking, I found puppetry now, what can we do? How can we make this our profession and just keep working in it? So I'll tell you about Australia's Wonderland first, which was a major fun park, theme park. Never been an interest of mine, but they had this beautiful fibreglass tree that had... Doors that opened, and it was a little marionette theatre inside, no. and it was called the Old Gum Puppet Theatre, the Old Gum Tree Puppet Theatre, and an amphitheatre of seating outside. So the puppeteers were quite. You know, we were in the tree, so everything was with aircon. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, and we would do a fourteen-minute show six or seven times a day. Wow, marionettes. That's where we learnt the craft of marionette making. Wow, fantastic! In Wonderland,
0: of all places, and in Wonderland, that's like a staple of my childhood memories because that was the only theme park in Sydney for so long and
1: for performers it was one of the best places when they first opened they had jugglers and roving performers and acrobats and singers they had you know the the full musical shows it was a really vibrant active place for performers and like everything things come and things go that's the nature of certainly the nature of theatre so that's where we learnt marionette craft and at that point marionettes were like the oh no I don't think you should do marionettes are so old-fashioned and we're still doing marionettes and people the public the general public just loves the art form
0: yeah but you said that you didn't really want to do wonderland so much at the first what what changed your mind
1: money (laughs) 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 so uh, well it was two things yeah money certainly it has to be worth your while it was I didn't have a car even then. Mm. So it was a train and a bus ride to and fro, and you know six or seven shows a day means that you're it's fairly repetitive and all the rest of it. And because we were in the puppet tree, we weren't seeing the audience either because they didn't see the performer. So it was was that slightly isolating?
0: From that, the puppet cottage emerged?
1: Well, we were, the puppet cottage was opened by a man called Basil Smith, who had a gypsy caravan and he used to drive around and councils would invite him to perform. He was, he never called himself a puppeteer, he called himself a showman. And they saw this wonderful puppet gypsy wagon and talked to Basil about opening the puppet cottage which was a tiny seven by seven meter cottage historical cottage in the rocks in sydney and basil had his time there and after about a year he wasn't that keen to continue so he suggested us and we went yeah all right we'll do it for three months and we did rolling three monthly contracts for 12 years Wow, and uh, we really then developed the public cottage as a theatre space. So we said we had set show times, and then we could develop shows. Directly for that space, so we knew we knew where the show was going to go. Uh, we knew how much space we had. We were so upfront and close with our audiences. But we used to believe it or not. It, I mean, sometimes there'd be a hundred, hundred and sixty people in that room <laughs> and outside. There were kids on parents' shoulders. It was that's a great amount quite, of people. Quite an expert. Well, in seven meters by seven meters, it was terrific, unreal. And we paid for those shows. We wrote the shows, built them, and they would take us mm, generally around six months to build a new show. But then the shows were ours, so we could do what we liked with the shows. And we'd have lots of return visitors from around uh, Sydney and Australia and even overseas. We'd have people that would... The first stop they said, when they'd say the kids, where do you want to go? In Australia, they would go, Papa Cottage, please. How fantastic. Oh, so many good stories for the cottage. But this was a unique place. It was free for the audience, Mm. but the performers got paid. Wow. And, you know, when does that happen? But what it gave The Rocks was this extraordinary wealth of vitality and publicity. Nobody minded. Giving the rocks a plug because it was free. Yeah, absolutely. Mm.
0: What happened to the the puppet cottage?
1: Things changed in the rocks. They had a number of amalgamations. So their whole identity changed. They were moving what they thought were child related activities to Darling Harbour. And a lot of those, of course, were outdoor activities. So there was no longer a space for the puppet cottage or such a thing. Um, And again, like we've talked about before, things seem to have a time. Yeah. But even. Just the other day we had grandmother, a mother and her daughter. The mother used to come to the puppet cottage. So the grandmother used to bring her little girl and then the mother brought her little girl <laughs> to come and see us a show. It's intergenerational. I
0: shows. really remember that space. I mean I, I don't know if this is the right memory, but I, I I remember about age ten walking in and literally they were just suspended from the ceiling. Yeah. All the puppets were just, and it was magic. It was just quite literally surrounded by a room of puppets mm. and not we're talking like hundreds of puppets in the single space of a small sort of almost ground level, almost underground sandstone building. And you performed in the one room. It, there was yeah. no backstage, there was no wings and it, it was you guys. And it's sort of bizarre that that childhood memory yeah. I'm now sitting in front I of the person yeah. Who, yeah. who did that. So that's just unreal. And so in 2005 you were awarded with the Churchill Fellowship of Australia to research puppet centres in the USA, Europe, the UK and Japan to make and develop an, a model a working model for a puppet centre in Australia. I need to ask you what that research was like and what came of that.
1: The Churchill Fellowship is one of the most wonderful fellowships that an Australian can get. What you write on your application is what you get nobody quibbles with you about it if they choose you to be a fellow then they respect you and at that time it was an award of about twenty thousand dollars including your travel so i just researched everywhere and i'm sure of course i missed puppet centers but i definitely wanted to go to atlanta which is a mega place it really is yeah vince anthony just is what a, a brilliant organizer and facilitator for Puppetry and he, the joy of you know, for him, the joy of finding funding is special. And he's a welcoming and wonderful. We couldn't have been made more welcome in Atlanta. And we were really taken under the wing. We were given absolute carte blanche to walk around the place, to ask questions, to see things. For us, that was like, wow, this is the mega place. And of course, Nothing like that happens without mega money. But that build, that all started in the seventies. When, for example, in Australia, I don't know if you remember when some buildings were available, like they were public buildings, yes. and when there was time when they were no longer needed as a school or some other place, then the idea that it might be an art centre was not weird.
0: Yeah, and it was just open yeah. for artists to use. Yeah, yeah. there's and very few left.
1: Well, now they're going to be sold or uh, real estates to. Valuable or considered too valuable. It's a shame. For that. So that was good timing for him. But before we went to Atlanta, we went to a family run puppet centre in Seattle the Carters, Northwest Puppet Centre. And again, welcoming. This is the world of puppetry, folks. You know, you turn up, you make connections and people look after you. They've got a lovely theatre. They spent time studying in Romania under Ceausescu where they had to line up. Uh, Mr Carter got a Fulbright Fellowship to go there, but you didn't get a lot of money. You got whatever you needed in the country. They were looking to find something with the council or the city centre, but it just got too complicated for them. And then they bought an old church and their big thing is puppet opera with marionettes huh. but they invite other performers we saw shows from Oregon and Portland and other places when we were there and they close for summer that's when they've obviously found that it's not a great time to be selling tickets during summer but that's when they make new shows or gather their energy together again
0: and so the research we read in America, in America. But we, we went everywhere right so Dublin yeah
1: Dublin to see the Eugene Lamberts. The Lamberts are like the puppet mafia in the Republic of Ireland because the family just has embraced puppetry and they do. It's like you hear Lamberts all over the place. It's, I shouldn't have called them mafia. They've got no, there's nothing evil about them at all. There's <laughs> nothing. To get you evil. For that statement. Um, and Eugene didn't know who Michael Jackson was and Michael Jackson came to his theatre. <laughs> Oops. But how wonderful. How Michael, wonderful. Michael must have been just thrilled that perhaps somebody didn't somebody know him. Somebody didn't know him. Actually, <laughs> that would have
0: been really refreshing.
1: And we went to the Scottish um, Mask and Puppet Theatre in Glasgow. That was in a council bunker. I don't know what it was used for before, but it was like a ugly building, but gorgeous inside. You know, that transformational idea of puppetry when you can decorate it with puppets and library. And they also had... Now this is something that would be fantastic to have. They had accommodation upstairs. Ah. So they could invite people and they used to run summer schools and, you know, again, we could stay there, how fantastic. Did
0: you see any common things from all these centres? Did you see any things in common that they had to create sort of like a recipe book for what a successful puppetry centre looks like?
1: I think it's very place driven. It's funding driven. Mm. There were really two major differences. It was like the small centres like the Lamberts really made a go of it and they had their own theatre but again real estate is important and people kept saying to me about running a puppet centre well you could be mobile I've been mobile all my life I don't want to be mobile (laughs) I want somewhere that can be identified as a place for puppets and there's the sort of the the mega business side when we got to France they don't produce shows there they don't have their own theatres they facilitate artists yes and they facilitate research and they promote artists and so that's a whole different style of puppet centre. The London Puppet Centre also has been very active in promoting puppetry. Dr. Malcolm Knight in Glasgow used to say about ghettoising puppetry. He didn't want to ghettoise puppetry, not to shove it aside as this art form that was just stuck somewhere. It yeah. was needed to be inclusive. And I think people at the London Puppet Centre also really did that advocacy as well. So there were these things where some puppet centres were more interested in the performance workshops, the actual creating the art form. Others were more involved in the advocacy of the art form.
0: And so before Imaginata, let's not go there yet because I wanted you to kind of think back to what you were kind of creating in your head as to what an Australian Puppet Centre would Mm. look like. What did you want it to look like? What was the dream, the idea?
1: Well, I haven't got there yet. The dream is a place that doesn't apologise for the word puppet. I don't mind if people want to call things visual theatre or whatever, but people like Puppets, audiences actually like puppets. Yeah, they do. And I like to own the word and the history and the future of puppetry and puppets. That's the primary focus is to really keep puppetry sparkling in front of everyone. You know, audiences, funding bodies, etc. It's very difficult and you do need funding. And where does that come from? We don't have a culture. We haven't had a culture of funding. No. For new things... For a long time, also a place where can people train to do puppetry in Australia. The answer is, if you're lucky, you can get in to do a course at Spare Parts in Western Australia, and they have really taken that mantle on and offering scholarships and organising amalgamations with universities, etc., to do some training. We've tried to do training at various universities; it hasn't lasted. I don't know why. Maybe what we need is more of a a vocational training in puppetry where it's hands-on. Yes, you've got the theory, but really you want to learn how to make a show. Mm. You want to learn how to get good at manipulation. All those things.
0: And we have certainly have had puppet building go into universities. I know that mm-hmm. Tina Matthews mm-hmm. was doing uh, stuff at NIDA and yep. then also at TAFE for a while there. Mm-hmm. And she's the puppet builder for The Ferals uh, amongst um, another bunch of amazing shows. It's existed before. So what do you think um, needs to
1: happen? I think we need to band together rather than trying to work separately. Yeah. And this is, we're all busy or not busy and trying to be busy, which is the other side of it. And to say why we, if you want to learn dance, myriad, Of places to learn dance. Tons. If you want to learn music. And of course these are private people that are setting up music schools. It's also how people think about puppets and teaching puppets to children is actually difficult. Just the physical skill of the skills you need to do a half decent job with a puppet.
0: Yeah. It's hard to teach. It's easy to introduce, but very hard to, to ingrain. Yep. I agree. Yes. Since 2010, you've been the director of Imaginata, the Australian Puppet Centre in New South Wales. So now we have a place for puppetry that is stationary in Australia. And it started in Sydney, but it's now in the Southern Highlands in New South Wales. Tell us how you got it. How did it begin? Right. Because now we have this space. And what is the dream for Imaginata?
1: We started doing shows in Annandale. Every possible lead, I would follow up on it. Where's the space? What was going? Who could I talk to? Et cetera. And even a hall to go in, we used to do a show once a month, but we had to take in the curtains, take in the lights, take in the sound, all of that, do the publicity and then pack it all up at the end of the show and come back next month. For one show? Yeah, for one. Well, we're used to that as puppeteers, but we are. You know, it's a lot of work. And also to build a regular audience. So even doing one show a month, that was good to build that. And we worked through a Uniting Church space in Annandale that was creating a theatre space there. And we just got on the ground floor of that, which was terrific. But we couldn't have anything full time. Everything was shared. And this is the modern culture, I think. You have to share all the spaces. Yeah, And I kept trying. I would follow up everything, (laughs) anything I heard of, and could not find anything permanent in Sydney. We decided to move down to the Southern Highlands and we built our own studio here. And once we got ourselves set up, I started to talk to council here, very good arts officer at the time, Jenny Kenner. And Jenny was really supportive. She again said, have a look, 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 and she gave me a whole list of places to go to. Again, most of those were things where you'd have to come in from one setup and then go away. And Jenny worked with some other people and they took Steve and I to see the Sutton Forest Village Hall in winter. (laughs) 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 And we walked in and it was freezing. But they offered it to us for a year. For free.
0: That's unheard of. Unheard of. Yeah.
1: I don't think anyone thought that we'd stay and I don't think anyone thought that would it would work. It's still not working financially. We give a lot of our time for for nothing. But happy to do that because it's still keeping puppetry bubbling. Oh, there's so much more I'd like to do. So much more. And then I negotiated a lease, a five year lease. So from two thousand and fifteen we opened at Imaginata. And then from 2016, we've got a five year lease. So 2021, we have to renegotiate what we're doing.
0: And so Imaginata, it offers a a show a week. What else does it offer?
1: We have a library that's not, I haven't publicised it well enough. We can't lend the books because they're too precious, a lot of those books, but people can come and some people have come to do research and it's great. You can sit and make yourself a cup of tea, play you know, go through all the books and we've done workshops there. We have given, sometimes we do these private things where people want to find out about puppetry, so we take them to Imaginata and we'll do private workshops with people. We'll take in resources. We've done shadow for one or two people. We do adult cabarets so that we get the adults. I'd like to do more of them, but we have to have the people here who can do the the items.
0: I think you're being a bit self-critical there because you've done it. You created a space in Australia that is purely yes. and holistically for puppetry. for puppetry. And I think furthermore to that, you have a show 11am every After Sunday. Every Sunday,
1: yep.
0: You know, and it's in a puppet theatre that when I went and saw it, it's designed for puppets. And, and you know, the, the lighting in the space is designed for puppets. It's not designed for mm. traditional theatre. And so many of the spaces, that, like you've said, are so multi-purpose and you have to be able to adapt to them. But this is a space that doesn't adapt and services puppetry. Yep. And that is very rare.
1: And we keep introducing little things like Steve's built a beautiful automata. People you know, turn the handle and you watch the gears moving and things happen. Adults and children can play with that we do have an emphasis on play yes we have marionettes for children to play with or adults but they're too scared so they let the kids play with them isn't that funny yes we Mm. have hand puppets and our philosophy is that things there are exhibition puppets that yes you don't touch but the other ones that are there play with them we untangle marionettes every week (laughs) but what's the point of just having things that are hanging up for kids, you that's know, it. it's like get your hands on things, and kids will come and they'll pick up that same puppet. That's what they've come for. Like you know? their, old, their old friend <laughs> yeah, their old has friend. been there, yeah, yeah. And I've also had a long-standing desire to have a three D library of mechanisms oh. because you can read things in books, and that's fantastic. The internet has, of course, just changed how we learn stuff and I'm amazed constantly at people's generosity with what they upload no gain they just go oh I can do this and I'm going to show you how to do it thank you (laughs) that's quite wonderful but there is something like when you you can hold something you can photograph it you can take drawings of it you can play you get your hands on it you can play with something and you go oh I see that's how that eye mechanism works or every puppeteer i know of have had to think how do i do that mouth mechanism how do i do that eye mechanism wrist mechanisms for example thumb to hand so that a puppet can hold something mechanisms steve's put together a beautiful display of going from how to carve a hand out of wood so going from the design to the block of wood to all the different stages to the final hand and i just watch people particularly adults that come and they will stand like they're at an exhibition and they will seriously study every element and he's also done a beautiful exhibition of a marionette that's made out of laminations of wood and then sanded so it's like all the processes to get to that that's precious information really is precious information and wouldn't it be just wonderful to have this whole library that people could contribute to because people are coming up with great ideas all the time yeah
0: having that mechanism library would allow a sense of appreciation Mm. for people who are just audiences to go this is what it it takes to put a show together this is what goes into a show this is the amount of knowledge and skills and I I really I really admire that dream and also that you've Mm. you've You've come a long way into realising it. And so I want to ask, what has been the highlight of this career now that you are grounded here and you've got the centre of puppetry but you still travel
1: mm-hmm. and go back
0: and forth? Has there been one moment where you go, wow, this is what I'm doing and I'm doing it and I'm loving it?
1: Oh, every time I perform to a good audience, it's a kick. It's such yeah. a kick. So always that. The other thing is I sometimes I get an email and I go, oh, oh, okay, here's something new. Because I've had the opportunity to direct or work with other companies or because um, both Steve and I have performed with other companies as well, which has been terrific. Last year and the year before, we had the opportunity to work with the Gabunia people near Coffs Harbour to do two one-week workshops with two different groups of teenagers for them to, to access their culture. So we had lots of time listening to the elders' storytelling and then the oh, kids picked the stories they wanted to work on. And it was shadow pu- shadow puppetry and hand puppetry that was the w- the way to go. And when I saw one girl who could barely tell us her name when we started, and you know, she's a teenager, 14, 13, two being on a mic at the same time as working shadow puppets. Wow. So she's talking, she's working the shadow puppets, and this is in a week. So it's that transformative nature, I think, of all the arts. But there's something with... Puppetry where you can get a separation, that ego separation. And for me, the puppet is like the egoless actor.
0: Oh, I love that thought. Mm.
1: Well, puppetry is a gestural art, so you can move anything. Mm. If you give that object, this is a cliche to talk about breath, but for me it's about the thinking puppet. If you can convince the audience that that piece of paper, that pen, that glass, that beautiful carved creature is actually thinking... Mm. They're going to believe in that. And that movement with, we've all seen bad puppet shows where things aren't moved with consideration without technique. And I think also this is perhaps what gave puppetry a bad name at some time because people weren't doing it well.
0: But I think while you say it might be the most common or the most twee, it is also the most poetic to say mm. that you, you give a puppet breath. I, I really stand by that. And so where does the industry need to go? Let's let's open our field wider. What ha- needs to happen in Sydney? What needs to happen in Australia? What needs to happen to the arts?
1: I've been thinking about this quite a lot. There's the tertiary side of education where I think in Germany they go to theatre school and you do puppetry at like a stream so you learn to speak you learn to move you learn theatre craft it's a theatrical medium or you're doing it for film and then you're learning you're learning film craft so you're learning the grander craft of what you're creating then you've got this overlay I've taught some dancers to be puppeteers and I've said look it's like acting it's just harder (laughs) because it's not your body that you're trying to get the audience to understand what yeah, you're doing totally you have to translate that tiny little movement that at what point does it have to this is a, a Philippe Jean-T, i did a wonderful master class with Philippe janty years ago lucky he talks thing. i'm very lucky yes
0: you are
1: he talks about impulse and boats that moment when you're doing a plie before you jump you're doing a bend before you jump at what point do you actually jump that's the impulse and to extrapolate on that, I spent some time working with another puppeteer. I won't do names at the moment, but he was working in a very big animatronic show. I could tell which puppet he was working because even with animatronics, he was using the concept of impulse. So it was like, I'm making a decision to move and then I'm going to move. And you could see it.
0: Wow. That's the It style. wasn't
1: just it wasn't just flying around the space, it was it was that detail technique. Neville Tranter, if anybody gets a chance to work to have a look at a, a video called His Master's Voice, Neville Tranter does a beautiful discussion on technique. Moment by moment. I think this is one of our understandings of puppetry. People don't get up to play music without knowing, well, some do, but you know, <laughs> if you don't have any technique, you're not going to be as good a musician. No. So, where do we go? One, I think banding together rather than working apart. Nothing else happens without advocacy, and it's a hard road. Advocacy
0: it takes a lot of energy. It
1: takes a lot of energy, and it takes a lot of energy of people working together rather than disparate energies of. I want my little bit and I want my little bit. This is what Penny Francis did in the UK. She was desperately interested in promoting puppetry. And it was that advocacy. Again, it's like marketing. You need to know what you're talking about and how to talk about puppetry and why. How do you
0: sell it? Yeah, Yeah, how do you sell it? Yeah, that's it.
1: Because immediately we're facing what people's idea of puppetry is. And it's quite disparate. People... People have very different ideas. I think it's also very
0: present. You know, it's disparate, sure. And because it's disparate, people can't associate it with one Mm. word, such as puppetry. They've definitely seen the Muppets. They've definitely seen a, a marionette show somewhere in their life, definitely held and used a puppet as a child or being performed to. But... Because it is that disparate, they have never connected these things together, these experiences together. And if we can find a way to do that, you've really touched on a note there. I think that's a really Mm. great point.
1: How we do it, it's a longer general discussion. But these are the sort of things that puppetry summits can do or Imaginata can do to bring people together. Talk really is cheap. It's good to talk. It's great to talk. But then you've got to follow it up with some action. And that action takes drive and energy and somehow we've got to make it fun, honestly. Yeah. You know, instead of being this, oh God, how do I go you know? It is so how, fun. How do we how do we make this advocacy fun? Look, we're
0: almost out of time. So before we go, I just wanna ask you what advice you would have for young puppeteers, performers, builders or advocates in Australia in just getting out there and doing it?
1: Yeah, do it. Again, you can talk through an idea, fine. But I call this tumble drying when you say, oh, I've got an idea. You see that little red towel moving around in your tumble dryer. I'm feeling very noticed right yeah. now. <laughs> so, and while it's going around, you go, oh, look, there's my idea. Oh, look, there's my idea. But until you actually get your hands on and build something. Now, I've been, I realised how privileged I was. I, my school was on the job, absolutely entirely on the job, and I was paid. And I could walk into a workshop and see Ross Hill working, or Tina or Beverly yeah. Campbell Jackson working on building a puppet and so you absorb stuff from that so do it people will have more time for you if you've turned if you've got a product rather than a dream they can say right oh good start try this way or try this material change this around a bit keep your skills going just learn as many theatre skills the writing, the directing, learn anything really to do with it. The music, the sewing, learn sewing. It's one of the best things you can do as a
0: puppeteer. I think the (laughs) amount of material and and not just sewing, but the amount of material knowledge that I've developed, and I'm only a baby puppeteer, folks, I've only been doing this for barely five years. And I, you know, yesterday I built a puppet using irrigation pipe and the cover of one of those really big Montmartre art books, you know, the plasticky black cover and some cable ties and, and, and a ton of glue and some foam and like i i have gotten to know bunnings from Very from puppetry well. yeah. yeah and it has really changed the way that i now do even menial tasks around the house like fix basic things and i think yeah it just broadens everything for you doesn't it
1: so getting back to do we need a university that may be too too big do we need vocational training we've got a circus school we've got dance schools we've got why can't we have a puppetry school good question let's leave it out there and go mm
0: yeah let's leave why it out not? There. why not why not Folks, if you're interested, you've got to get onto One Orange Sock and tell us at One Orange Sock Productions what we can do to to make these dreams that Sue's sort of outlining happen. But we are out of time. Sue, thank you so much for talking sock with us today. For more information about the Sydney Puppet Theatre, go to www.sydneypuppettheatre.iinet.net.au. The Imaginata Australian Puppet Centre runs puppet shows every Sunday at 11 a.m. and is located in Sutton Forest, New South Wales. For more information, go to www.imaginata.com.au. Thanks for listening. Listening with us today. Thank you, Sue, for being here, and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson.
1: I've been Sue Wallace,
0: and we'll talk sock again soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week, we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials, and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at Productions and check out our episode blog at oneorangesock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorownsock.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Varnier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. We'll be back next week with another great episode here at Talking Sock.